we are talking tonight about our new series. So it's called Hold, Spur, Meet. And during this series, we're leaping into uh, one of the books in the, the New Testament, which is the book of Hebrews. And this is a really special book. It's a book I love. It's supposed to be one of the most scholarly books in the Bible, well, in the New Testament. And many people think that it was written by a woman. There you go. So ladies, more scholarly. Um, and we absolutely, absolutely know that it was written to a bunch of first century Jewish people. Um, because it's got so many references to uh, Jewish tradition, Jewish history, Jewish leaders, um, Jewish kind of cultic rituals like Day of Atonement and things like that. So we absolutely know it's for these first century Jews and they are second generation. So they're not Jews that were around at the time of Jesus. They were Jews that have heard the message and they're one generation on. So I think that's really interesting. But what's happening to them is they're in a, a, a situation where they're experiencing intense persecution for their faith. They're, they are facing the threat of death. And some of them are finding it so challenging that they are tempted to abandon the Christian faith, abandon the journey and revert back to Judaism and just become what they were before because it would make their life so much easier. But this writer is saying to them, don't do that, keep going. And the whole book of, of uh, Hebrews is this exhortation to keep going, to keep running the race. Don't give up because what you've been given in Christ is so much more than what you've had under the old law and the old rituals. What you have in Jesus is an access to a new kind of life, a life that actually leads to eternity. You have something that God has never, ever offered humanity before. Why would you give that up? Now, I don't know whether some, you know, some of you here might feel like some of those people. You, you may be a, a Christian. You've been a Christian a long, long time. You may be a, a new Christian. You've just started out in the faith, or you may be investigating faith. But there might be people here who've had really fun times with God. Every prayer is answered. You really love church. It's really working out for you. There's a lot of, of joy in your life. Everything is good. And then you enter a period where, do you know, everything is just disappointment after disappointment, challenge after challenge, just difficulty after difficulty. And you might be thinking, I don't know if I really want to continue this anymore. I, I feel like giving up because it would make my life that much easier. And it's this situation that this writer in Hebrews is speaking into when she or he says the words, let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of, of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And Philip began last week and he was talking about hope. And he says that every believer needs to become an expert at hope, not just faith. And he said, if you cultivate an unswerving hope in God's future promises and hold on to it, 
It will stand you in good stead for any season, good and bad. Because hope hinges on nothing in this world or nothing inside of you, but hope hinges upon the character of Christ. Hope hinges upon Christ's promises and hope hinges upon his work. His work, that is what your hope hinges upon. For me, I interpret as my hope is, is hinged upon something in heaven. I like to live my life with a heavenly perspective on what's going on down here. And that really equips me. I know some people say I'm a bit kind of spiritual, heavenly minded, but it actually is really helpful to have a perspective from outside when you look at what goes on in the world. And it really equips you to face every trial, every difficulty to have that hope in something that is outside of you. So today we're doing the second verse, which is all about spurring one another on. And what we see is the writer moves away from something that you do for yourself, which is to cultivate hope, to something that you need to do for others. So it's swifted, it's swiveled the trajectory from you need to do this for yourself and now it's about your responsibilities to others to spur them on and what it means is that there are just some things in life that you and I cannot do for ourselves there is a requirement from other people to help you and I become strong and become able and we need community to draw stuff out of us and we need community to strengthen encourage and keep us going we actually need so it's about how essential community is and how essential those others are in your life who spur you on now i don't know if you can think of a time where you have absolutely been dependent on other people for something where you thought i i don't think i can do this on my own I absolutely need another person. I need others. I need comfort. I need strength. I might need advice. You know, we all have different experiences, but every experience we have, we can share, can't we? We can say, this was my experience and this is how I got through it. If you think about how humanity has developed, it's all about shared knowledge. But we need to share we need to love, we need to comfort, we need other people in our lives. And they, at times, will draw out of us something that we didn't even know was there, and they will make us become greater than what we would have been left alone. Now, I've got a little bit of an illustration about this, and we've been talking about love running, so I thought it'd be appropriate. Sorry if it just sounds like love running, love running, love running all tonight, but I have done love running. I've done it every time we've run, not because I love love running or love running, but because Philip made me the director of it. I don't actually do anything, but because I'm the director of love running, well, one of the directors, um, I have to turn up. So I thought I can't embarrass everybody and do a terrible race, so I have to train. So I've done it every time. And I've learned a few lessons on the way about what to do, what not to do, in order to maximize your potential and you know, get the best possible time. And my biggest lesson to all of you tonight is when you do love running, is empty your bladder before the race. Because when you start the race, and I did it with my friend Eleanor a few times ago, when you 
start the race. Um, there's lots of water and there's lots of jelly babies on the way. And so you, you go past the jelly baby stops, scoff the jelly babies, go past the water. Do you remember all this, those that have done love running? And you guzzle water and it's all free. And who can resist a freebie? So you just take it and drink it. And when I got halfway around, my bladder was so full. It was just really, really uncomfortable. And they give you one portaloo, you know, round the race. And there's a queue of 100 people. And you think, I'm just going to be here until the afternoon if I wait for that loo. So one year I had to literally go behind a dustbin and my friend Eleanor was watching me. I meant watching out for me. <laughs> you must watch me. She was watching out for me. And um, I just thought any moment someone could do like a little shortcut and see me squatting there. But um, it was all right. My, my modesty was preserved. But it added about three to four minutes to my time. And that really annoyed me because I was wanting to do a good time. So my little lesson to you, my experience is empty your bladder before the race. So the very last race that I ran, which I think was about 2019, we had loads of ladies from Metro there. And actually one of them remembered this story, but we had loads of ladies at Metro. And I just said to them, I said, ladies, everyone to the lose. So I literally piled all these women. We, we sort of, we were about, you know, there's 50 of us. And I think it was about another 50 there, but we were all waiting. And in the sort of, they call it the, um, the athletes arena, something posh like that. But there's got, there's this kind of whole kind of circle, semicircle of portaloos. There's about 40 of them. And so we dutifully waited in the the queue and um it just wasn't going down i was thinking this isn't fast enough the race is starting in 10 minutes and so i thought i'm going to observe because i bet that everyone is just waiting and only three cubis, cubicles are being used you know what british people are like don't you they just they love a queue they just see a queue they just join it and you can be in, in a festival or whatever and nobody thinks to check that all the other portaloos are empty they just wait and I thought, listen, I've got time for this. I'm going to check that people are actually using all these other portaloos. And so I clocked which ones were being used. And I thought, I'm, going to, I'm just going to open the doors of all the others. So I just went round one after the other, just bashing the doors open like this. And, and I was very energetic. And then when I got to about the 10th door, I turned back to look at the girls. And I said, girls, they're all empty. And I bashed this door down. And it wasn't empty. And this woman, looking terrified, grabbed her knickers, pulled everything up. And all the love runners went, ooh, like this. And Emily Toogood was one of those women. She said, I remember that moment. So I just, I, I really felt for that lady because I knew that she'd been in there for quite a long time because I'd been studying the doors. And I thought, oh, gosh, she was probably in there just centering herself, gathering her thoughts and thinking about her kind of her route map, her, her race strategy. And she was thinking, oh, I'm just in this quiet, hidden, safe zone, gently, slowly emptying my bladder and bush, suddenly this door opens and there's a hundred terrified women looking at her. So I do feel for that woman. So Ladies, gentlemen, if you use the portaloo, please lock the door in case I'm outside. Just keep yourselves protected from me. So anyway, after, after we'd all been to the loo, um, we went to the race line and we could see our start time and, and everyone's very excited and you've got this sea of red t-shirts and everyone's like cheering everybody on and, uh, and you start running. And it's a bit like Formula One when you get going. 
because uh, in a Formula One race, all the cars start chicaning around each other, trying to get to that first spot. And it's like a melting pot of different abilities. I don't know if you remember at school fractional distillation, when you separate all the, the fractions. So it, basically, you get this separation of all the different fractions. But some of the fast runners have to get through all the slow coaches and the lower ability runners. And uh, you just hear these voices, and they go, to the left, to the left. And I'm like, do you mean I've got to go to the left, or you're coming into the left? And they just, so be aware. And I, did, I bashed into a few of the fast runners, because I didn't really understand what they were saying. And some people just go, beep, 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 <laughs> at you. And you kind of think, you can just talk to me. I can hear you. Anyway, so you have this sort of bit of a tussle for spaces and to get through the crowds. Um, but after about, I don't know, after about five, maybe six minutes, um, you realise, you know, you, you've, you've reached, you, you're with your posse and you just, you see the fast runners going ahead. Can I just tell you, the fast runners, they're very easy to identify because they, they wear practically nothing and they, they fly past you and they're like ballerinas. They have their straight backs. They have their knees up high, and they, they actually point their toes. Have a look at them. They do. And I would describe the movement as jeté. Anybody who's done ballet? Anyone done ballet here? Yes. I won't say out loud. But it's a jeté, isn't it? It's like a leap. I felt like I was in the, the 12 days of Christmas with all these lords leaping around me. But there's a, basically, there's a lot of leaping going on with the fast runners. And then they leap off into the distance. And then they leave the kind of the, the above average runners, then you know, the upper me uh, intermediate. And then I would say I'm lower, lower intermediate runner. That's me. But at least I get to look down on the slow coaches behind me because they just take one step and, uh, and then they start walking. And then you look back, and they've stopped at the Jelly Babies for 10 minutes, and then they've stopped at the water counter, and then they've joined the queue for the loo, and you're kind of just heading up past them. But I decided I was going to have a game strategy, a game plan for my race. And I thought, I need to find somebody who's just a little bit fitter than me, who's just got a little bit of a faster pace, who's not going to drive me too hard. I'm not going to try and chase after the athletes, but I'm going to find somebody who's just a bit further on from me. And I found her. And I don't know if any of you remember Nellie, but she was a student here, fantastic lady, one of our singers. But there was Nellie, and I thought, I'm going to, I'm going to ask Nellie if I can run with her. So I sort of sidled up to Nellie, and she's a very lovely, sweet girl. I said, Nellie, can I run with you? And she said, you can. Yeah, let's run together. And so we set out a plan, and we could see another friend, a girl called Flo, and we said, let, let us use Flo as the pace setter, and let's make sure that there's no distance increase between us and Flo. So there we were, just chasing Flo, but from a distance, and, uh, and going round, passing the one-kilometre mark, passing the two-kilometre mark, and she was just saying to me all the time, keep going, Kate, keep going, you're doing amazingly. And I got a stitch after the second kilometre, and Nellie just put her hand on my shoulder, and she said, oh, Lord, please, here Kate of her stitch and the stitch just went and we kept running and we kept running and then when you get to the center of the um the city uh, there's been no crowds really up the portway but when you get to the center of the city um you suddenly see loads of people and they all start cheering you on as well so i've got nelly cheering me on here and then suddenly there's a crowd of cheerers and they're all going come on kate you can do it and i said to nelly these people are complete strangers how do they know my name and she said you've got your name on your bib and i didn't even know so there it was kate i actually had a thought um i've had a thought about this and i thought i might not 
give my real name this year. I might put a name on me that will encourage me and make me feel really great about who I am and lift my spirits and, yeah, just, you know, raise my self-esteem a bit. And I thought of calling myself Your Majesty and have all these people calling out, Go on, Your Majesty! <laughs> anyway, that's a bit of a joke. But um, it is like being carried on a wave of encouragement. There's absolutely nothing like it. You feel like you're going to fly. It's so exhilarating. And what is even nicer is just there's so many red T-shirts everywhere. And everybody who's a love runner goes past you and taps you on the back or says, go on, Kate. And it just there's a real sense of camaraderie that we're in this together. We're having fun. And it is an incredible feeling. So I get to the end of that race. Nelly is still right by my side. And we cross over the line. And you can actually see your time as you go under. And uh, I did my fastest race ever by a long way, because Nellie was there urging me on, spurring me on the whole time. And that is what this passage is really about. It's about those people who come alongside, who spur you on, and they get a greater performance out of you because they're there and they're doing that role. And I, I, um, I, love, I love this verse, and I think it is very, very important. I'm going to read it to you. So the actual verse that we're looking at is the, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And it starts, interestingly, with that word consider, which means it's not natural for us to be encouraging. You know, it's, it's something that we need to think about. We need to really contemplate. And we need to, like, give, yeah, just give some kind of, be intentional about it. We need to be intentional about encouraging others, which means giving time to it and sometimes like setting up a context for it. How am I going to spur somebody on? What is the context for me doing that? And some of you might think, I don't feel like I've got much to offer anybody else. I don't feel like I'm that great a Christian that I'm worthy of spurring and saying to someone else, I can help you to be better. And actually, that is the right attitude to have. That's humility. That's when James says, you know, when you gently um, correct your brother or steer him, just remember that at any moment you could be caught up in the same wrongdoing as him. We've got to be humble. We, sh we can't do it to be proud and to look down on people. It's got to be done with humility. So that is the right attitude. But also, this writer suggests that it is an obligation of kingdom living to spur one another on. It is a responsibility of every believer to be encouraging and spurring people on. We, we need to take responsibility for that role. And the question you might ask is, well, why do I need to be responsible for spurring on? Because the world is hard. Because the world is challenging. It's really difficult. The world is evil. We're running for the international justice mission, and slavery is still a huge industry. And a lot of it is children and girls. That's a wickedness that happens on the planet. We, have a, we live in a wicked place. Um, there's a lot of opposition to people who want to do good and who want to take a stand against the wickedness. There's a lot of opposition for Christians it's hard. There's a lot of temptation. Temptation to do things which you know you shouldn't. 
There are a lot of difficulties that we all face in all these areas. And I think the worst difficulty is actually our own humanity. There's something about us which tends towards selfish behavior. It tends towards you know, a, a, a self-interest. I'm just going to always do what's right for me, no matter what it costs others. So we can hurt and we can harm. And it's out of selfishness that we do those things. So we need other people to steer us away, constantly steer us away from that natural inclination, that natural selfishness, to be the people that, or the version of ourselves that has been recreated in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. We are choosing to be the person that has been recreated in Christ. I am becoming Christ-like. And I need other people to help me, to steer me towards my Christ-likeness. That is what is going on in this verse. And if we look at that word spur, it's actually not a very nice word. We all associate spurs, don't we, with horses. So anybody who rides horses, you might have used spurs, but they're nasty little things you put on your heels. And they dig into the horse. And the point of a spur is to get that horse to go from stationary to movement. The point of a spur is to create a reaction. It's a provocation. It's an irritant. So the Greek, there's uh, two meanings for the Greek for this word. So we're going to bring it up now. I'm going to try and pronounce it. There isn't anybody who's Greek in the room. No. So I can pronounce it however I want and nobody will know. I'm going to pronounce it paroxysmon. That's okay, isn't it? Paroxysmon. Now, the pa paro bit, we use in a lot of English words. It's para, it, and it means to come alongside, like parallel or paralegal. It's the idea of coming alongside something, but it has the idea of coming in close. So the para bit is you've got to come in close, and it's not like a, a quick come in and nip out. It's like I'm going to come in close, for a long period of time. In fact, I'm going to come alongside for the whole of the duration of this. It's a bit like Nellie. She was with me for the whole of the race. She came alongside. And it has this also connotation of you are close. You are close enough to touch that person's life. You are close enough to be able to see what's going on. And you spend enough time for the relationship to become intimate. That's what's going on. And then the second bit, oxysmon. That is like to jab, to prod. So the whole word is the idea of coming in alongside and very close and building up that relationship and that trust. And then at moments, you can just give them a prod. Now, some of the writers who write about Hebrews say this was a carefully chosen word because the writer knew that some of the people, well, some people had come into the ranks of that community and they'd come in, they'd gotten to know the disciples, they'd gotten to know the believers, and they'd started causing harm. They were agitators, and they, was, they were causing people to become despondent and lose hope. And, and they were being very destructive, actually. And this writer knows that agitators have come in to try and cause harm to the community. And she uses the same word. And instead of agitating to cause harm, the writer says, Agitate in order to direct yourself towards love. Towards love and good deeds or good works. Why love? Why good deeds? Because that is the way of Christ. Jesus is the way of love. Everything he does 
is out of love. He says to the disciples, if you love one another, that's how people know you're mine. You love each other. I I'm showing humanity how to walk in their original design. You all actually made for love. I'm restoring you back to your original design and you were made for love. Not wickedness. You were actually made for love and you were made for good works. And Jesus says, which I pre prepared ahead of time for you. God had in mind an incredible planet, an incredible earth where human beings actually were able to love. And their lives were filled with an abundance of good works, only good, only love and goodness. So this writer says, prod each other to get back to your original design, love and good works. And don't give up, don't, don't um, back off from it, but keep up with it and think of ways, more ways to keep spurring one another on. Now, what does this mean for us? So in Metro, do we consider how to spur one another on? Do we create context? Do we put aside time in which we can spur one another on? And the answer is yes. In Metro, we are actually very intentional about this very subject, spurring one another on. And we call it mentoring. I don't know if any of you have heard about mentoring before. Some of you may, some of you may not. But if you look at our mission statement, it is find, love, follow, serve. Ka-ching! <laughs> uh, we exist to help people find Jesus. That is basically our services and alpha. To love one another, that's hubs, where you cultivate kind of the love of God. Follow, that is mentoring that is discipleship we help people to follow jesus through our mentoring and then serve that's love running we want to be here to serve the world we want to show the love of god in visible tangible ways so we're here to serve so this is a trajectory this is a trajectory that jesus was talking about and this hebrew writer was talking about go in the trajectory of love and good deeds and actually this will help you get there <laughs> if you follow it so mentoring in Metro, we have a mentoring program. And if you want to be mentored, all you have to do is find somebody that you would like to be mentored by. Now, I would recommend that if you're a slow coach, don't go for a ballerina runner. You need to go for someone who's a lower intermediary, someone just ahead of you. Someone who think, actually, that person will stretch me a bit and that person will draw stuff out of me because they're just a little bit further ahead than me. So you need to look for somebody that you think, yes, that person's ahead of me. Also, you need to pick somebody that you think, I actually know that I can build a relationship with, with this person that is trusting, that is transparent, that's honest, and that is, well, that is fruitful. There's no point being mentored if you're not prepared to be vulnerable with another person or if you keep everything hidden or you're just, yeah, you, you, you're not, um, you, you, you fail to be sort of honest. You actually need to be able to let that person in close enough um, and prod you. But I think the biggest thing about mentoring is willingness. Are you willing to have somebody agitate you so that you go into a different 
trajectory. So that's what's the most important thing about mentoring. It's not just I come and I, I self-improve just because, you know, and I, and I look at ways to uh, get more out of life. It's actually I'm looking inward um, at how I'm doing and I'm looking to implement the practices and the disciplines of Jesus Christ. That's what mentoring is. And in order to help you in your mentoring, so if you're a mentor, we actually have this incredible app, which is behind me now. So we have an app, we have um, online resources. So a mentor and a mentee will register and they sort of their relationship gets put together online. And then they, there's about 14 sessions that you do relating to prayer, scripture reading, taking the Sabbath, serving, finances, all these disciplines that Jesus talked about and said, if you put these words and obey my commands, the Father and I will come and we will come and make our home with you. If you do what Jesus says, it's like the old um, build your house on the rock, not the sand. But Jesus gave us so many great teachings. And through this mentoring, you get to apply them. And you, you, you're intentional about um, putting in the practices and the disciplines of a Christian life. And it really, really benefits you. But the app is great. I think some of the things I love about mentoring is that you can, you can assess yourself with your mentor and you can say, actually, I'm, I never pray. So then you can set goals. Well, why don't we set a target that you just pray for five minutes a day? And then you can reflect back, you know, a couple of months later, how did I get on with that target? But you work it through. And I think the best thing I, I think about mentoring is you keep records. So you do little notes at the end. And then you can look back at them at the end of the year and you can read all your notes and you can see the progress that you've made throughout the year in journeying towards greater Christ-likeness. So it does, I think it's wonderful. Um, but I think the real, real wonderful benefit of mentoring for you and for everybody else. Well, for you, first of all, it means that you become intentional about your spiritual growth. I think it's great because you begin to implement and practice and exercise the teachings of Christ in a visible and accountable way. I think it's great because you get to process your life and your walk with Jesus in a sort of within and without way. So some people just assess themselves, don't they? Oh, I'm doing okay, I'm doing okay. And so you, you process from within, but actually having somebody next to you who's close, who knows you well, they will help you to process from without. And other people will spot things. They will spot, you know, see all the blind spots. And they go, actually, let's process it from without. There is, there is more you can do. We can go further than you think you should go. We can aim higher than you think you should aim. So you can process with that person. And I think the best benefit of mentoring is it just creates an incredibly healthy church. If you have a church where everybody is a disciple, everybody is implementing the practices and the teachings of Christ, you just have a really healthy and a wonderful and vibrant church. You have a church that other people come into and they can see Jesus 
They see it in how you love. They see it in how you behave. They see it in your interactions. And that is actually what was so wonderful about Love Running. Because the first year we did Love Running, there was a guy called Ed who just watched the behavior of all the Love Runners as he ran round. And he stopped a guy at the end and he said, there's something very special about your community. You seem to really love each other. And that alone brought Ed into the church. People see it because what you don't realize is it's not in the world. That kind of love doesn't exist outside. We take it for granted inside, but it's a powerful witness and it's a powerful revelation to people to see individuals operating in the love of Christ and operating and living and practicing out the teachings of Jesus. It is the most powerful witness that you can give and you can bring. So that is the benefit of mentoring. You, you implement and you practice and you just build wonderful, wonderful communities that are filled with life and that God can come and bless and you feel his presence among you. That's the real church, isn't it? That's what the real church should look like. You're just a bunch of people gathering if you're not a bunch of disciples operating in the teachings and the disciplines of Christ. And lastly, I want to say, don't be afraid to mentor someone, because I think that is sometimes the biggest op op obstacle. <laughs> can't get my words out. Being a mentor can be an obstacle for people because they just don't feel good enough. Um, and also they're a bit nervous about the time, um, what will be demanded. It's dead easy using the online resources. Everything is done for you. But what you don't realize is there's huge benefits for you being a mentor. It's extremely satisfying seeing somebody else grow in the teachings and in the disciplines of Christ. It's very satisfying. It's really satisfying seeing God change their life and the transformation that can happen in their lives. And one of the things I absolutely love is that you share with the revelations that they have and you learn what they're learning alongside them. And everybody learns different things. We all have different kind of experiences and revelation of God. But when we're together in that close proximity, we learn against each other. And the Bible calls it iron sharpening iron. You're like, you're like these two irons just thinking, I'm, we are here to be disciples, to be journeying and implementing his teachings. Let us share with each other and, and sharpen each other as we go. I love that scripture. So don't be afraid to be a mentor because there's enormous benefits for you as well as the mentee. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you for listening. And this is my big idea. Asking others to come close and encourage us helps us go further in our Christian lives than we would alone. One more time. Asking others to come close and encourage us, helps us go further in our Christian lives than we would alone. So let's pray. And after that, I'm going to hand over to the band, but do feel free to come up gently. <laughs> yeah, Heavenly Father, oh God, I thank you that you love community. Lord, I thank you that you put us 
in relationship with yourself and with others. And Father, I thank you, God, that we need each other. Thank you, Lord, that we need you and we receive, Lord, the goods from you and the kingdom. But Lord, we need each other to push into those goods and to push into the kingdom. Thank you that you made it like that, that it brings humility and it brings interdependence. And that is where love becomes fully manifest. Holy one, we don't get to love outside of relationship. So you've made relationship for us to express that love. So Lord, fill us today and Lord, help us to become more intentional about spurring other people on and being spurred on ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.